Welcome to the Innovation Cafe here on What She Said. I'm Chris Abel and I'm in conversation with Mandy Ray Crack, world champion freediver. A freediver is someone who can dive deep, 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 deep into the ocean blue without the assistance of any kind of breathing apparatus. It's not just the ability to control one's breathing, but also the way that the body adapts to the ever-increasing pressure. Mandy Ray has used her remarkable talent to become a seven-time world record holder. Now, in this conversation, we're going to give you a bit of a taste of what it's like to be Mandy Ray with the use of some audio snippets from a simulation of one of her fantastic dives done for the Ontario Science Centre. You'll also notice that this conversation is actually made up of two interviews. I met with Mandy Ray a few years ago, and then just recently we caught up at the Royal Ontario Museum to talk about her role as an ocean advocate. In addition to being a freediver, Mandy Ray lent her talents to the movie The Cove, and so her stories and insights has been sought as we start to explore the many different issues involving today's oceans with things like plastic and climate change as well. For fans of Fun Coincidence, these two conversations happened four years apart to the very same day. Just wasn't planned, but it was the way that it worked out that we both sat down on December 4th. Same day, but different years, four years apart. In fact, we almost sat down at the exact same hour, too. Simply gives me an opportunity to include an update on some of the interesting things that Mandy Ray talks about early on. Are you ready? This all begins with a deep, deep breath. I am taking my last breath, taking in as much air as I can. This is my last breath until I resurface. I roll over onto my front and lift my legs and monofin high into the air and pull myself under with my arms. I start doing strong kicks to help fight the buoyancy and to start me on my way down. You mentioned earlier that freediving is one of those experiences where your physiology actually changes. Mm -hmm. Now what did you mean by that? Well, in order to do the dives, you actually have to change certain aspects of your physiology, become more, I guess, dolphin-like, right? We, uh, we're all ingrained with mammalian diving reflexes, things like bradycardia, which is slowing of the heart. So simply immersing your face in cool water triggers these sensors that help slow your heart rate down. Doing a certain type of breathing technique will help slow your heart rate down as well, which a lot of people that do yoga know that. Also, when we're on our dives, we induce something called blood shunt. So our extremities don't need as much oxygen is our, our vital organs like our heart and our brain so it actually constricts blood flow to our extremities forcing more blood to our core to, as a preservation mechanism and then the one I find that's one of the coolest ones is when you're on a really deep dive your lungs will actually help pull plasma the clear sticky substance from your blood into parts of your lungs to help with compression because fluid is incompressible I felt this first on my 136 meter world record dive I came up after the dive and felt like I had developed a chest cold and kept coughing and uh, I'm sure my eyes were bugging out like I thought I was I looked like I thought I was dying or something and my, my coach husband Kirk said you know like don't worry just the thoracic filling it'll go away and within 10-15 minutes it dissipates back into your bloodstream and it's stuff that Waddell seals go through you know hundreds of times a day 
And it's just amazing to me that we all have this ability in us, but the more you train those reflexes, the stronger they become and you achieve stuff like world records out of it. So this is something that you're born with, but it's, it's sort of at a low level and then you're training yourself to kind of enhance it, make it better so that you can perform these diving feats. Yeah. This is something that you're, you're training yourself or going through exercises on land. Because I always assume that a lot of what you're enhancing is something that's under the pressure of being below the surface, but you're saying it's not. It's something you can actually work on on dry land. Oh yeah, a lot of it you can. There's one of them, splenic contraction, where you, your spleen contracts, putting more red blood cells out into your body, and red blood cells are oxygen-carrying companion. And the researchers used to think that you had to be submerged in water in order for this to happen. And new researchers showed you can induce it dry land. Trained freedivers have splenic contraction within the first two minutes of a dry breath hold. So most of my training for world records, uh, out of a five-month training program, probably three-quarters of it at least is dry land. Well, I guess that's helpful because it's not easy to just simply go out into the middle of the ocean no. and, and sort of arrange for, for these kinds of dives. Yeah, big thing with free diving is the safety factor. A lot of people think that they can just go to the pool and hold their breath whenever they want. And that's when accidents happen because blackouts are a very real concern for free divers. Even if you don't think you're pushing your limits, it's still a real inevitability, I guess. It's going to happen to you eventually. And so if you don't have a trained training partner with you, you can lay in your couch or on your bed and practice holding your breath and if you black out you wake up again so not only is it a safer way of training it but it's also it helps when you're you know I, I live in Vancouver area and the waters there are really cold <laughs> a lot of the year so training isn't always possible in the open water and if you lived in the middle of Canada it's even harder to get uh, sometimes the perfect conditions to do open water training so you find other ways and what's the change feel like in terms of your body, I mean, are you sensing this is a change or is it just that you're allowed to go deeper into the ocean? There's some of the reflexes that we think that we can feel, like um, the blood shift. There's a strange sensation that you kind of get and we think that's what it is, but there's so little research that we're not sure entirely. The main thing is when you really get into it, you feel like you're an ice cube melting into the water. You're not a foreign body in the water anymore, you're part of it. And that's the thing that I think competitive freedivers aim to get to, or the, the, the elite of the freedivers feel, is that they are more comfortable in the water than out of the water. It, it's hard to explain that sensation that you just feel like you belong down there and you don't need air, you don't need all of that stuff. You just need your fins and your mask and you're free. And that's what it feels like, is just freedom. Right, because I guess most people would assume that it's going to be a very claustrophobic experience. Mm -hmm but you're saying it's quite the opposite. I, I couldn't even imagine how it would be claustrophobic. <laughs> yeah, it's just you're in this immense body, you know, like the ocean just goes on forever. And the I don't remember a lot on my record dives, but the, the color of blue, like that deep depth color that is just in front of you for most of your dive, that kind of sticks with you. And it's just this overwhelming sense of calm when you're on the dive. Like it just feels good. You're not panicked, you're not stressed, you're just in the moment. From a, a sensory point of view, when you're down there, I was just reading recently about um, echo chambers where they can absorb sound and it's the quietest place on the earth mm. and it's so quiet that all you hear is your own heart beating, you become much more aware of your internal. Is that 
equivalent to, to being deep down there? Are you hearing things in the ocean, or are you far more aware of what's happening with yourself? All I remember on the dives is this, is the checklist I have going through my head. So it's me talking to myself, because it's a very big mental state. People call it the flow state that you're trying to get into, where nothing else exists except for you and what you're doing. And so for me, it was breaking the dive down into bits and pieces, and I have this internal dialogue going. So I hear my voice, and that's all I hear. And I don't like silence because silence uh, invites evil monkeys, we call them, to break in and start telling you, ooh, you know, this isn't feeling so good. You should turn around. And if you let them get in, your dive is over. You're not making it to death. So you, you really keep this internal dialogue going on that it cheers you on in a way. You know, it tells you what you need to be doing to get the job done. What is it about the dives that is pleasurable to you? The after effect. Knowing, like, I love being on the dive. That sense of being in the water is great. But being able to say that you worked your butt off <laughs> for six months and look what you were able to achieve. Like, that's pretty amazing because I never thought I'd be doing world records or be part of an amazing exhibit at, at a science center. I never thought I'd be that person that would be doing that. And to be able to prove to yourself that you can... I think one of the oddest questions is people would be like, I don't know why you would do something like that. And it just, it, it saddens me to hear people say that because it's like, wow, if you had someone come up and tell you that they could tell that you could do something that no one has ever done before and you would stop yourself from giving it a try, like that, that would just be the saddest existence, you know? If you have the chance to do something groundbreaking and new, even if it's just groundbreaking for you personally, you got to give it a try. Do you ever find that you get a, a reaction from doctors if you go for a checkup? Obviously, <laughs> your feedback is going to be very different from the rest of the patients they have. Um, the, the funniest thing, I, like we always had to get medical clearance every year for doing records and competitions. And my family doctor, who wasn't a diving physician, all she would say was, okay, promise me you're not going to hyperventilate. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, I never bothered to explain the whole thing to her. But I was like, yeah, yeah, I promise. You know, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Kirk and I do. And I dove up till I was almost eight months pregnant. I free dove with her and not a single researcher told me to stop. I was playing it easy for my level of free diving. I wasn't pushing it hard, becoming hypoxic or anything like that. If anything, I was just keeping in good shape and she's perfectly healthy and she's an amazing swimmer too. So it's kind of neat having researchers come to me and ask me questions about what I went through on the pregnancy and if anything was different and it seems like it was just normal everyday pregnancy. So it's kind of neat to be part of that aspect of it too, teaching other people new things. Have there been many free divers who've been pregnant and doing what you do? No, most of them have stopped when they found out it was my living in that and I wasn't about to stop for it because I, I was positive there wasn't going to be any ill effects and one of our other instructors in our company just went through her pregnancy and dove as long as I did as well and she's got a beautiful healthy baby girl too. I actually I was just contacted a few months ago from another lady that just found out she was pregnant and she's, she's a professional freediver and was asking me questions and it's kind of funny that I've now become the, like, the go-to person to ask on that because it's, it's something that's not studied you know they, it's a hard ethical question to get permission to do research on something like that so researchers they hear about you doing it and they ask you questions afterwards so they can create theories on what's happening do you ever find that you identify with superheroes 
in that sense <laughs> that they push themselves, that they're able to do something that most people can't, or have the experience of the exhilaration of, of that achievement? Or You know, I've never really thought of it that way, <laughs> superhero. <laughs> but we see it when we train people, you know, seeing people break their mental barriers and get into doing things that they never thought possible. And I truly believe that, you know, there are some physiological advantages I have, being able to equalize hands-free. My lungs are larger for my age and height, weight. So I recognize that I have those advantages built into me. But I think I was just very lucky in finding somebody that knew how to train me properly and saw that I had these special talents because without that I would just be the person saying wow look at that person that's done that you know I was just lucky that I found that niche that I, I had and it was exposed that's my dive alarm telling me I'm at 80 meters I sink a bit more than look down to see the bottom plate and tag I grab the descent line with my left hand, then reach down and grab the tag with my other. Oh my god, I've done it. I'm at world record depth, 88 meters. I'm so excited, but I have to stay focused. I'm only halfway there. So this, like, never happens, but it's really, really cool. I, I did interview you a few years ago. As it turns out, four years to the day. So it was December 4th, 2013. <laughs> you and I had a lovely conversation about free diving, about the changes to your physiology. And so I'm happy that here, December 4th, 2017, to pick up the conversation with you and talk about being an advocate for oceans. How are you, Mandy? I'm very good. That's, that's surprising that it's, uh, that it's the exact same day. It is crazy. So I do want to kind of pick up on one thing that we did talk about last time because over the years I've interviewed lots of women in science and technology and people come up to me and they say, well, tell me a little bit about some of the women that you've had a chance to, to chat with. And I do mention you and every time that I mention, not only are you a championship free diver, but that you went free diving while you were pregnant, mm -hmm. that always gets a big response. <laughs> From the women that I talk to, they're all like, wow. So I did want to ask how things are with your daughter, and I know that there was a lot of curiosity from researchers about that. If there was any kind of an update you can give me. She's turned into quite a mermaid. <laughs> she's, uh, well, she'll be eight in February, and um, yeah, she's, she won the Cayman Kids competition last year that we run every year. She had a, her personal best depth of 8.1 meters, and she's in grade two and developed totally normally, <laughs> except she has this huge love of the water. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So today, I'm catching you before you do a big keynote speech all about being an advocate for the ocean. You are, as you've described yourself in the past, part dolphin, someone who might be more comfortable under the water than above the water. So I think, yeah, you are a fantastic person to get a perspective in terms of what's happening with the oceans. There's a lot of concern about what's happening to our water systems. There is, and I'm really excited to be here to listen to all the other speakers as well. It's like, uh, I, I'll get mine over with just so I can listen to everyone else, because there's some amazing topics that are going to be presented. I think everybody has at least heard some of the major issues that are out there. Of course, there's a lot of concern about plastic and microplastics. Uh, there's a lot of concern about climate change. 
you have a lifestyle, unlike me, that is far more related to the water and the oceans. What are the kind of things that have been going through your mind? I mean, you, for you, water is so much of a joy, so much of beauty and pleasure, and yet, clearly, I think there are things that must bum you out a little bit. Oh, for sure. And it's weird because most of the memories come back about the beautiful places, like you say, you know, all the amazing imagery. And the problem with those, you, you keep meeting people that have been diving longer than you and they can tell you about the lack of life now, like what it used to be like to what it is now. And there's places where I've even seen the difference in the, the time that I've been diving. So I can't imagine what my grandparents would say the difference would be sort of thing. And then to see, even in the most remote areas, see plastic floating by and see waste, you know, it, it, there's always that little reminder there somewhere that things aren't as good as they could be. I guess for most people, it's hard to wrap their minds around the scale of the issue. We talk about the ocean. The ocean is huge. And if anyone ever gets a chance to understand just how large the ocean is, it must be a bit shocking to try to figure out just what the level of, of our litter is, our pollution. You know, it doesn't seem like we put that much into the ocean. The ocean is huge, and yet it does seem to be able to get everywhere and anywhere. I mean, is, is it sort of a case that it's like walking down a filthy street, but for you it's, it's going out into the ocean and realizing, okay, well, this is kind of getting a little grimy. Yeah, and I think you hit on one point that is the big reason that we have such a huge problem is that the oceans are so huge, you never see all of it. Like, you can see garbage on your streets a lot easier than garbage floating in the ocean because many people don't venture out there that often, right? And the more you venture out, the more you see of it. So because it's out of sight, it's out of mind for a lot of people. And they don't think about the consequences of their garbage and lack of recycling and use of plastics and, and whatnot because it's not in front of them all the time. I mean, a lot of the bigger issues that often get reported, I look at them and think, well, I, I'm just one person. A lot of those issues that I see, they tend to be things that corporations should be dealing with, governments and countries should be dealing with. But there is always something that the average person can kind of relate to. I, I love that uh, there's encouragement to try to do like a six-minute cleanup at a local beach. You spend a lot of time going in and out of the water to the land. Do you notice that maybe a lot of people are being a little lax in terms of picking up after themselves when they're visiting the waterways, the shorelines? You see it everywhere. And the thing is, is that if you have a plastic bag fly away from you in downtown Toronto, eventually that's making it to the water. You know, it, it doesn't stay on land. It eventually gets into our waters. And it's not like leaving it in one place isn't going to affect the rest of the area. So it, it all gets affected eventually. And, but the, the cool thing is, is that you, don't, you shouldn't need to wait for corporations to make the difference because where you put your money helps to make them decide how they're going to change as well. So like plastic straws, plastic bags, if you don't use them, there's not going to be as big of a need for them and production will slow down. Not spending your money at dolphin parks, you know, slowly those, if they're not making the money, they're not going to be in demand and they'll slowly go out of business. So as an individual, you can make changes that will eventually make effect because there's a lot of one people here, you know. There's billions of us. And if we all just pick a, one or two things uh, to change that we think will help better the planet, eventually that's going to have a huge effect. And I guess it can be 
a bit of a shock when you hear stories of how there have been fish markets where they've done tests to find that there is actually plastic in some of the fish that are on fish stalls, that it has reached the point where even if you've never entered the water yourself, it still is going to impact upon your life in terms of what you're eating. Oh, yeah. And without our oceans, we don't exist. So it's not like we can watch them just go away because it's going to affect us in a really horrible way if we don't save them, right? So it's something that it's going to affect us more and more often and more prevalently so that you're going to need to take action. And yeah, I believe you're still living in the Vancouver area? Uh, Campbell River on Vancouver Island. Yeah, we went north a little bit, <laughs> but we're, yeah, we're in the middle of beautiful nature and yeah, it's lovely. We have this uh, fantastic water system. We have uh, beautiful shorelines all across our country. You, as you go out and you perform your record dives, you're representing our, our fantastic country. Do you ever get a sense of the water systems that you come from, that you, you represent in, compared to other countries? Do, do we have something that we really need to be proud of? I'm always proud to travel as a Canadian. You know, you go to different places and um, throughout the... Well, I started traveling for freediving in 2000 and you go to some places where recycling was non-existent. And all these things that you just take for granted here that you, you're able to do to help, do something to help. It's nice seeing areas catch up that weren't quite there before, but there's still everyone, Canada, everyone has room to grow for sure. And have you had much of a chance to kind of explore... Canada, I know you're here in Toronto, been in Vancouver, been diving in lots of places. As a Torontonian, I grew up not really appreciating how diverse our water systems are. I had, very early on in my career, I got to interview the world surfing champion, and I mentioned how jealous I was that, you know, there was surfing in places like Hawaii. I got in so much trouble when I came back, because people are like, no, there's surfing in Canada. And I'm wondering, you know, do you have a real sense of how diverse our coastlines are? probably better than I do. Yeah, it, it's amazing and I feel bad presenting tonight because most of my experience has been lakes. Like I've dove lakes in, in Ontario, in Alberta, and then ocean. All my ocean diving has been on the west coast. I haven't dove off the east coast of Canada yet and I need to. It's like one of those dreams and there's certain animals like the Greenland shark and stuff like that that I would love to get a chance to go and experience and I just haven't been able to get there yet and that's all all the East Coast stuff. So I, I feel like I'm not really representing the whole of Canada too well, but I will make a change in that. <laughs> I'll get there one day. So you mentioned the Greenland shark. What other creatures here in Canada have you had the chance to encounter? Are there any that you look and feel a great affinity towards? Since the cove, I have this whole new respect for whales. I always thought I wanted to dive with sharks. That was my big thing. And I've gotten to dive with great white sharks. And they are just as amazing as I thought. But the encounters with whales are a lot more... They're just special. Having something that huge allow you to be near it. On the West Coast, you don't dive with them. But you still have the chance on whale watching boats to watch them and just experience it. And it was neat. I'm actually in the presentation tonight. I have some pictures of one encounter on a whale watching boat that we had this summer. And I just remember my daughter saying, Mom, their breath smells like fish because <laughs> it was so close you could smell it. And so that, that was kind of a fun moment. So do you have any experiences 
diving in Canada or with our waterways that sort of come across as being very Canadian to you? <laughs> well, I guess the most Canadian one we do is every year we host a salmon swim weekend up in Campbell River, the salmon capital of Canada. And uh, we take people from all over the world hiking around the trails along the Campbell River and then we jump in and we snorkel with the salmon. While they're going upstream, we come downstream. And it's a pretty incredible moment because we have kids, adults. We had a group of disabled divers come with us this year. One man that was blind went, I think, three or four times <laughs> down the river. It's, you know, it's just this incredible experience to, to see that part, you know, fish coming from our oceans and back up into the, the rivers. Well, and especially, I mean, a salmon run is such a tremendous sort of event that happened. There may be a lot of people listening who've had the experience of being in a river or in a pond, goldfish maybe swimming around. <laughs> Not the same thing. No. Being in a river among salmon. Yeah, like like tens of thousands of salmon. Like you think you're looking at the bottom of the river or rocks and then you realize that they're all moving and it's actually salmon everywhere. Yeah. It, it's pretty cool. <laughs> now tonight, when you're up on stage, you know, is there something key that you're hoping to touch upon, something key you want to communicate? You know a lot of the people here in the audience, they've gone to similar exhibits and they've heard very, you know, the common messaging out there, but is there something that you're like, oh, I really want to kind of point out to these people because I'm excited? I think for, for my presentation, because I'm not a scientist, I'm just someone that enjoys our waters, um, is that mine's more about storytelling and how without storytelling I would never have gotten into the waters. And I'm hoping that other people realize that by listening to people's stories and getting excited about it and then hopefully um, getting into the water themselves and creating their own stories, it'll help generations keep getting excited and, and want to protect it because they love it so much. All right, well, it was wonderful catching up with you again. Thanks yeah, for spending it was the time. Great to see you again. Thank you. But I'm not done yet. I still have to complete the surface protocol. I take off my goggles and nose clip and then look at the judges to give them an okay sign and say, I'm okay. But there's no cheering yet. All eyes are on me. No one is touching me as the judges observe me, making sure I stay conscious. Finally, they hold up their white cards. It's real now. I just set a new world record. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have faults. He had the same amount of faults as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, 4Kids Flashback. 4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. 
and thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.